The book of Nehemiah is an autobiography of faith. The Bible says that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It was Martin Luther, the 16th century Protestant reformer, who said that faith is a living, daring confidence in the grace of God. It was Martin Luther King Jr., the 1960 preacher, who said that faith is taking one step and not being able to even see the staircase. The late great Haddon Robinson said that faith is taking God at his word. This morning I want to submit to you an additional definition of faith. That faith is a one-way ticket with trust in God and obedience to God as its only destination. Let me say that again. That faith is a one-way ticket with trust in God and obedience to God as its only destination. The reality of that statement is no better personified than in the life of Nehemiah. Today I invite you to take your Bible, turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Nehemiah chapter 2, I want to begin at verse 11 and conclude at verse 20. Nehemiah chapter 2, allow me to begin at verse 11. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the Jackal Well and the Dung Gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I returned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had not said anything to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Once again, let me read the beginning of verse 20. I answer them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Last week, we began this 12-part sermon series by inter being introduced to the man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah was born and raised in captivity. He was serving the Persian king in the days that followed the Babylonian captivity. Last week, we learned with Nehemiah 
the bad news. Some of the fellow Jews had gone to Jerusalem to see the condition of the wall, the temple, and the people living in the sacred city. They came back to Persia. Nehemiah pulled them aside, asked the question, how's it going? And they responded that the wall is broken. The gates still burned with fire. And the people of God are in great trouble and disgrace. In response to that bad report, Nehemiah sat down and wept. He knelt down and prayed. He stood up and worked for he was a cupbearer to the king. When you and I come to Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 1, we learn that it is in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now if you're not careful, you'll just gloss over that detail as if it's insignificant, just merely moving the story along. But let me remind you that Nehemiah begins in chapter 1, verse 1, by telling us it was the month of Kislev in the 20th year of the king. Now I realize that not many of us know very much at all about the various months on the Babylonian Persian calendar. I'll go one step further. I don't know very many of us who care very much about the various months on the Babylonian Persian calendar. But suffice it to say, that the time that spans between the month of Kislev and the month of Nisan is four months. For four months, Nehemiah had heard this report and bottled it up inside. For four months, wasn't able to tell anybody. For four months, he was able to only grieve individually. For four months, he was only able to pray personally. For four months, he was only able to mourn by himself. He was not able to share this with anyone. For four long, grueling months, he tried to process the reality that even though God's people had been permitted to go back to Jerusalem for some 94 years, the work had stalled. People had become apathetic and complacent, and now the city was still in ruins. The wall was still broken. The Gates were still torched by fire, and the people of God were in as much shambles as the city of God. And for four long months, Nehemiah had to process this all by himself. For four months, that would be like you learning a bad report from the doctor today and not being able to tell anyone till well after the summer was over, sometime in the month of September. Four months. Let's wrap our mind around this. This is the average length of a college football season. Now we can understand how long it is. Four months. For four months he was not able to say anything. Why was he not able to say anything? Why did he have to just slap a smile on his face and go to work? Because he was the cupbearer to the king. And it was forbidden for anyone to appear before the Persian king sad or depressed. If a person appeared before the Persian king distraught, the end result could be their own death. Now Nehemiah took his life in his own hands every single day. He was a cupbearer to the king, which meant that he not only bore the cup, but he was the first one to sip the cup as to make sure there was no poison in that cup. So he had daily access to the king. He was with the king multiple times every day. 
The king knew Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew the king. Nehemiah knew all the rules and regulations that went around the royal throne. He understood how to approach the king and how to speak to the king, what was acceptable, what was unacceptable. And for four long months, he had to be the best actor in all of Persia. He couldn't let on that anything was wrong. He had to slap a smile on his face. He had to go about his business. Some of you know exactly what that's like. You know what it is to harbor a secret. You know what it is to have something that's eating you up inside, but you can't share it with anybody. And you've got to be the best actor or actress that you know. And you always have to say, everything's good. Everything's great. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? And all the while, you're dying inside. This is Nehemiah for four months. And then, we are told in the beginning of chapter 2, it's the month of Nisan. It's four months after hearing the initial report. He goes about his daily chores just like he had been doing for the last four months. And all of a sudden, the king noticed. What's wrong? You have a sorrow on your face. That's the sadness of the heart. What is it you want, Nehemiah? In that moment, Nehemiah uh, must have just frozen in place. He must have thought to himself, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? What is the king going to say? What is the king going to do? I mean, nobody is supposed to show sadness. I thought I was doing a great job. I thought I had been fooling him for four months. And now today of all days, now today I go before the king and he can see right through me. What is Nehemiah going to do? What's he going to say? In response, Nehemiah makes a twofold request. This is so bold of Nehemiah. He makes a twofold request. Please appoint me as the governor to Jerusalem and its area. And please give me papers so that I can have safe travel from here to Jerusalem. And with those papers, I can also get all the resources needed so that I can rebuild the wall around the city. This is a tremendous request. I mean, I think and I contend that the only way he's able to make this request is because for four months he had been praying, God, please strengthen me for the moment. God, please strengthen me for that opportunity when I can go and speak something because you've placed me here on purpose and for a purpose. You put me here as a cupbearer to the king. I, like no one else, have the influence and the access to the king. So, Lord, I know there's going to come a day when you're going to depend upon me to say what I need to say. Give me the strength to do it. I think the only way he was able to make that request is because he had the backing of four months of prayer. And he'd been praying and praying and praying for this very moment. And the king says, what do you want? Well, please, anoint me as governor, appoint me as governor of that area under Persian control. And also, if you will just give me a blank check, that would be great, so that I can not only travel safely, but also build the wall at your expense. This is the request that he makes. And King Arxes says, very well, I'll do it. 
the king was favorably disposed toward this Jewish man who had been born and raised in captivity and in exile. Why? Because God controls the heart of the king and directs the heart of the king like the waterways on the earth. Once again, we're reminded no sooner as we get to Nehemiah chapter 2 that our God is sovereign. We declared that last week in Nehemiah chapter 1. It's a recurring theme throughout the 13 chapters that our God is sovereign, which means he's in control of everything, the affairs of the nation, what's going on around the world, every potential uh, cataclysmic crisis. God is in charge of all things. And if he's in charge of the big things, he's also in charge of the small things. And if he's in charge of the nations, he's also in charge of the people of those nations. So you just might need to hear this morning that God knows exactly what you're going through. God knows exactly what you're feeling. God knows the report that you're harboring inside. He knows the disappointment. He knows the worry. He knows the concern. He knows exactly how you're doing in this very moment. Our God is in control of all things. If he can move upon the heart of a pagan king of Persia named Artaxerxes, he can handle whatever crisis keeps you up at night. Our God is in charge. He's in control of everything. So the king declares that uh, Nehemiah will be appointed as the governor of the region. He gives him the papers for safe travel and for all of the royal timber and any other resources that Nehemiah just might need, not only to get to Jerusalem, but to rebuild Jerusalem. By the time you get to verse 11, Nehemiah traveled safely 900 miles. It's 900 miles from Susa, to Jerusalem, it would have taken two months to make that travel. When he gets there, for the next three days, he prays and plans and prepares. Nehemiah knows that before there can be organizing, there's got to be agonizing. Before there can be building, there's got to be some bereavement. So for three days, uh, Nehemiah stays to himself, and he prays a little bit more, he plans a little bit more, he prepares a little bit more. And then, under the cover of night, without telling anyone what he was doing, he just got a few good men. He said, come with me. They left and went through the valley gate. He gives us a panoramic picture of his travels as they went out the valley gate, turned left, went around the wall. And then uh, after they had made the circumference, they re-entered the valley gate. And Nehemiah did a feasibility study. He just examined the condition of the wall. And as he was going under the cover of night, he realized this is worse than I even anticipated. There were some places where he had to get off his mount. What that probably means is that he was riding a mule there was some terrain that was so jagged, the gravel was so loose that the mule would not even go. He had to get on foot and, and travel and look to see some of the gaping holes along the wall that used to once fortify the city. He saw that much, if not most of it, was in shambles. He makes his way back um, gets back into the valley gate, and he has a decision to make. 
What's he going to do? I think that at numerous points in Nehemiah's life over the last six months, he could have called it quits and not a one of us would have blamed him. He could have thrown up his hands and said, this is over my head. I am in out of my league. There's no way I can handle this. I mean, I'm just one person. This is a massive problem. I, I can't do it. At numerous places and points along the way, Nehemiah could have quit. I suspect that six months ago when he first heard the report from his brothers in the Lord, he could have tried to dismiss it. He could have said, look, I know that it's bad, but what can I do? I'm only one person. Over those next four months, he could have tried to convince himself, I've just got to push this out of my mind. I mean, I know Jerusalem's not what it once was. It's, it's not what it was in the heyday of King David, but, but, but the problem is so big and the, and the ruin is so vast and expansive that, that there's really not much I can do. So I've got to just stop thinking about this. And, and over time, time will heal all wounds. And so I'll just, I'll just stop thinking about it. And I'm sure that on that day, when the king said, what is it that's troubling you? He could have kept his mouth shut. I mean, that's what some of us would have done. Oh, oh, uh, king, nothing. I just, you know, I had some bad fish last night, and it just didn't settle well. That's, that's really what the problem is. But king, there's really not, not a big deal. I'm not saying, see, see, I'm happy. I've got a smile back on my face. Don't worry about it, king. No problem. Also, during that 900-mile journey from Susa to Jerusalem, there are a lot of places when he could have ordered for the convoy to turn around and go back to his comfortable job in the palatial Persian palace. I'm sure that when he got there in Jerusalem and when he saw just how bad the devastation was, he could have said, look, I didn't know it was this bad and I can't do this. I'm going to quit. And yet, Nehemiah doesn't quit. And this morning, I ask you, why? Why doesn't he throw up his hands in despair? Why doesn't he just abort the mission? Why doesn't he just turn around and go back to the only home that he's known in Persia? I mean, you might do that. I might have done that. And nobody would blame us, right? I mean, this is a tremendous responsibility to try to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. Why did he not quit? I think the answer is embedded in verse 12. In verse 12, Nehemiah writes, I had not yet told anyone what the Lord had placed on my heart to do for Jerusalem. There's the key. The Lord had placed this on his heart. He couldn't shake it. It was a God-sized burden. It was not a burden that Nehemiah just uh, conjured up for himself. It's, it's not a burden that anybody else put upon him, saying, go on, Nehemiah, why don't you go and do this? No, this was a God-shaped burden. This was a God-sized task. The Lord had placed this upon his heart to do for Jerusalem. Now that begs the question, what has God placed on your heart to do for him? If God placed this task on the heart of Nehemiah, 
then doesn't it stand to reason that if you too are a child of God, that God has an amazing purpose, a tremendous plan, a great task that he wants you to do? What has God placed on your heart to do? How has God burdened you? We just finished a seven-part sermon series entitled, Who's Your One? We encouraged each other to identify that one person that we are close to who's not close to the Lord. We prayed for that person or those individuals once a day, every day, for 30 days. And over that 30-day span, if you prayed for them every day, then I just have a holy hunch that you have a burden for that person. And now that the sermon series has concluded, the burden has not, has it? And you still have that burden for that person. I mean, I know because we had hundreds of people that we identified, that we uh, put on a card, placed here on the altar, we nailed to a cross of wood. There were literally over 300 names. And I know that God has not stirred the water 300 times. So I know that all of those individuals have not come to faith in Jesus Christ yet. And you're still having conversations with them. And I wonder, my friend, uh, is that the person that God has laid on your heart? Is that the burden that keeps you up at night? What does God burden you to do? What mission trip does he want you to go on? What ministry does he want you to participate in? I mean, certainly he's called you to this faith family and, and all of us have gifts, talents, and abilities and all of us have things that we ought to be doing for the Lord. So, so what area of ministry has God burdened you? What area of ministry has he placed on your heart to do? Is it preschool ministry, children's ministry, student ministry? Is it adult ministry? Is it small group ministry? Is it disciple making ministry? Is it with the media? Is it with the music? What area of ministry? Is it outreach? What area of ministry has God burdened you to do? What has he placed upon your heart? Because when you recognize the God-sized burden that he's placed on your heart, you can't shake it. In fact, I'll go so far as to say you won't even want to shake it. It's a God-sized task. It's the burden that God has placed on your heart. And you have a holy itch. And you have a desire. You have a want to. You have a holy case that can't help us. You just can't help but do what God has burdened you to do. So friend, what is it? What has God placed on your heart to do for the city of Pelham, Helena, Alabaster, the greater Birmingham area? What has God placed upon your heart? Who has he burdened you with in these last days? This is why Nehemiah does not stop. He can't quit. He can't throw up his hands in despair. He cannot say, listen, I'm, over, I'm in over my head. I'm out of my league. There's no way I can do this. No, he says, the God who called me is the God who will equip me. So what is the burden that God's placed upon you? I can tell you that for more than 25 years, God has burdened me to preach the gospel to thousands. Please hear that correctly. I am not on an ego trip, but I am here to tell you that God has placed upon my heart a desire to preach to thousands upon thousands. 
for his good and for his glory. I'm convinced that's why God has us together right here, right now. He has positioned this congregation to be highly strategic in this area of the greater Birmingham area so that we have the capacity to reach out and to minister to thousands upon thousands. We rejoice that over the last six years, God has added 808 people to this congregation to God be the glory. God is expanding the footprint of this faith family and God has placed upon my heart, hopefully placed upon your heart, the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel to the thousands. What has God burdened you to do? What has he put on your heart to do? Oh, for some folks, you think to yourself, uh, well, I don't know that God has burdened me for anything. I don't know that I have any God-sized task and responsibility that he's placed on my heart. Frank, can I just remind you of the New York City evangelist named Samuel Hadley? who reportedly one day was leaning against a lamppost in the midst of Times Square, and he simply said, Lord, the sin of this city breaks my heart. That's the beginning of a God-sized burden. The sin of this city breaks my heart. Is that the burden of your heart? The sin of my life breaks my heart. The sin of my family breaks my heart. The sin of this congregation breaks my heart. The sin of this community breaks my heart. The sin of this city breaks my heart. The sin of this culture breaks my heart. The sin of this country breaks my heart. The sin of this world breaks my heart. Friend, that's the beginning of a God-sized burden. If you say today, as I've been talking the last few moments, I don't even think I have a God-sized burden. I don't don't know what it is. I mean, I don't know what God has put on my heart to do. Then, friend, if that describes you, then beginning today, I just want you to pray, God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. Just start there. God, please, break my heart for the things that break your heart. And still, for others of you, Uh, you can say to me, I'm burdened about everything. It's not that I'm burdened about nothing. I'm burdened about everything. I mean, there's some people, and, and, and truth be told, you are burdened by rising gas prices. You are burdened by an ever-growing waistline. You are burdened by the crabgrass that grows in your front yard. You are burdened by the, uh, 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 a dead-end job. You are burdened by an economy that's not meeting your needs. You are burdened by a host of things. And so this morning, let me define the burden as a God-sized burden. I mean, I know it may be an issue that you have crabgrass growing in your yard, but, but that's, not a, that's not a God-sized burden. What is the job? What is the task? What is the responsibility? What is the yearning? What is the desire? What what is it that God has placed on your heart to do? That if the Lord gives permission, this is what you want to do for him. See, that's why Nehemiah doesn't quit. That's why he doesn't throw in the towel. Because he can't. This is something that God put on his heart to do. I would much rather have 200 people with a burden than 2,000 people without one. Because far more for the kingdom can be done by 200 people with a burden versus 2,000 people 
without one. In verse 17, uh, Nehemiah eventually, after doing the feasibility study, he shares with the congregation, shares with the people, uh, this is what uh, we need to do. For you can see the trouble that we are in. The problem is that they couldn't see the trouble they were in. That was the problem. The problem is that they were comfortable with their complacency. They were not agonizing over their apathy. I mean, they would agree with Nehemiah. Look, the city doesn't look like it did when David was king. We'll give you that. But times have changed. I mean, we've gone through the Babylonian captivity. I mean, that began 150 years ago. And now here we are, and there's not a whole lot we can do about it. I mean, the Persians are now in control. And listen, I know that we've had uh, uh, our own Jewish people to be able to come back decade after decade for the last uh, 94 years or so. But, but it's, it's hard to do the work these days. I mean, the walls don't come together like they used to. And, and it's, just, it's, just, it's a lot of labor. It's a lot of work. And, and there's a lot of distraction. And there are a lot of things that, that we get, uh, you know, just kind of sidetracked by. I mean, listen, we just have to, we have to be okay with, with what we've got. We know the wall's not complete. Yes, there are gaping holes over there, and there's a hole right there. But if you look right there, that still looks pristine and great. I mean, look at that. That area right there looks really good, Nehemiah. Stop looking at the gaping hole over there and over there and behind you. Look right over there. It looks beautiful, doesn't it? And Nehemiah says, here's the problem. You don't see the problem. You don't see that we're not all that we're capable of being. You don't see that we're not all that God has for us. We, we need to refortify the city. We need to rebuild the wall. We need to rebuild our lives. We need to rebuild our marriages. We need to rebuild our families. Because when we rebuild the city of God and the people of God, then we are safe and secure against the adversary right now. The enemy can come in. He can come and go as he pleases. And he can wreak havoc in our lives, spiritually and physically. We've got to rebuild the wall. You know, as we have uh, now come out of a pandemic and we look around and we say, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's going okay. It's going, it's going fine. I mean, we've got 75% of our attendance back uh, pre-COVID. Um, and, and, and I've had people have conversations with me and say, you know, that, that's actually not too bad. I mean, that, that's pretty good. Especially if you compare it with other churches around. I mean, 75%, that's a pretty good percentage. That's a solid C, right? I mean, that's, that's a pretty good percentage, 75%. And all the while, I want to say, do you see the gaping hole, the 25% of the people that used to be here that are not here? And that doesn't even take into account the other people that we need to reach in the days ahead. I mean, do you see the gaping hole, the 25%? So what are we going to do about it, you say? Well, um, we're going to try to re-engage with the 25%. And how do you do that? we got to identify and we got to invite. And so we've already identified. We know the 25% that have not come back yet. And the deacons don't know this. But tomorrow night, they're going to help us as we invite that 25% to come back. And the pastors, and they do know this, we also are going to reach out to that 25% in the hopes of getting them back. But the reality is, look, there's some gaping holes. And it's not just the 25% that haven't come back yet. What about all those others in, this, in, the, in the case of disciple-making and evangelism that we have not yet reached for the kingdom of God? We can do more. That's what Nehemiah is saying. 
We've got to do more. I mean, this is, this is God's burden that he's placed on our hearts. I mean, I know that God cares about a wall. But I would make the argument God cares about his church even greater than he cares about the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And I would also say that the book of Nehemiah, yes, it is communicating about leadership, about how you, how you get a job done and how you provide good spiritual biblical guidance and leadership. And they, they, they do the task of rebuilding the wall. But the wall is symbolic of the lives of God's people. Because God's people at times can be in shambles, ruin, and rubble. And the inertia of sin will prompt us to say, there's nothing we can do about it. But what God burdens the heart with, what God places on the heart of his people is, yes, we can do something about it. Do you see the problem, Nehemiah says? And at first they really didn't see it. But then he, he begins to share with them the idea that God had placed on his heart and the provision that had been given by King Artaxerxes. And they respond by saying, let us rebuild. And then Nehemiah says, uh, we began this good work. It's a good work to do the work of God. It's a good thing to do God's work in God's way. I don't think Nehemiah is trying to minimize the devastation. I don't think he's trying to say this is going to be easy. I mean, later in the memoirs, he will give a little bit more organization to it. But in essence, this is what he's going to say. Um, let's just start by standing shoulder to shoulder, side by side, and cleaning up the mess in our own front yard. That's a powerful picture. He's going to tell the people, listen, I need all of you. Because all of us are going to stand shoulder to shoulder, side by side, to do this work of God. What Nehemiah says to his congregation, I say to this congregation, I need all of you. Because together, we're going to stand side by side, shoulder to shoulder. And first and foremost, we're just going to focus on the mess in our front yard. When it comes to rebuilding, where do you start? Right here. At home. In my heart. With me. With my family. And, and we start there. And that's what Nehemiah is going to tell the people. Let's just start with the junk that's in your front yard. Let's just start with the shambles and the ruin that's right outside your front door. Let's just focus on that first. And then in focusing on that, if you repair your area of the wall, and you repair your area of the wall, and you repair your area of the wall, guess what's going to happen? Eventually, the whole wall is going to be repaired. And... When you repair your area and you look over and see a brother or sister in need, then you're going to walk over there and you're going to say, can I help you lift that boulder? And they're going to welcome you to come help them lift that boulder. I dare say that every person listening to my voice would love to have somebody walk up to them and say, how can I help you shoulder that boulder of burden? Let me say it another way. Really, friend, is there any way I can pray for you? What's going on this week in your life that I can help shoulder your burden so that you don't have to carry it alone? Is there anybody in this room who would push anybody else away who's seated right around you? If they came up to you and they said, brother or sister, 
is there a boulder in your front yard that I can help you with this week? That's exactly what Nehemiah does. He says, we are going to stand shoulder to shoulder. We're going we're gonna to work together. Um, we're going to engage the junk that's in our yard. And when we take care of that, we're also going to begin to look peripherally. And we're going to see other people with other junk. And we're going to go and help them to my left and to my right. Those behind me, those in front of me, and those all around. And we're going to together rebuild for God's glory. And that's the plan. Once again, Nehemiah, he's not trying to diminish the work. It is vast. It is expansive. Listen, friends, all we have to do is look at our culture. Look around. 30-mile radius of this steeple. We've got big problems. I mean, in 30-mile radius, there's homelessness and poverty. Substance abuse. Sexual addiction. Crime, violence, greed, apathy off the charts, immorality that has deteriorated. I mean, all we got to do, just, just look around, just, just do a 30-mile just feasibility study, and you'll see that there are a lot of people and places that are in ruin and rubble, shackles and shamble. And I know it seems overwhelming. I know it does. But what are we going to do? We're going to do our best to do God's work in God's way. We're going to do our best to stand shoulder to shoulder. We're going to do our best to minister to the people in this congregation and beyond. We're going to try to take care of the junk that's in our front yard. And in the process of taking care of the junk in our front yard, hoping to develop holy habits, then we also are going to try to do that to those on our left and our right, in front of us and behind us. And all the while, we're going to rebuild. Rebuild for good, rebuild for his glory. Now, no sooner do you start trying to do God's work, God's way, that opposition comes over the horizon. In our story, it's the unholy trinity, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. It's the first time that we've met this unholy trinity. It won't be the last. These three bozos, they, they always show up at the most inopportune times. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem. They come to throw ridicule and accusations against Nehemiah and his work. What are you doing? You actually think you're going to do any good? What, are, are you going against the advice of the king? How do we know that the papers that you hold in your hand, you didn't make up and you didn't sign? We don't know. Maybe it didn't come from King Arxes. They all just tried to throw out some seeds of doubt. It's ridicule. It's sarcasm. It's the first time in Nehemiah, it will not be the last. Because every time God's people try to do God's work in God's way, there's always opposition. There are Sanballats and Tobias and Geshems in our culture. I mean, if we start really trying to build God's church, if we really do our very best to be the people of God, um, focused on the God of the word, I promise you opposition will come our way. There'll be people in our culture. Ah, we don't call them Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, but that's exactly who they are. And they'll say, do you actually believe that Jesus is the only way for a person to go to heaven? Do you really believe that your holy book that you call the Bible is God's infallible word? How arrogant you must be. 
Do you actually believe that the Holy Spirit inspired men to write down his word in perfect truth and preserve it from generation to generation, century to century, and hand it down without any mixture of error or mistakes in it? Do you actually think that of all the world religions, that Christianity has the corner market on truth? How arrogant you must be. We're a very diverse people, not just in this community, but in this country and in this world. And, 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 and if you look at all the world religions, they all have an ethical standard to them. So how can you say that yours is the right one? Do you actually believe, Sam Ballot will ask you, that marriage is by God's design? Do you believe that it's God's institution? That it's made for a biological man and a biological woman for life? Do you actually believe that? Do you actually believe that God created them male and female, only two genders? What if they don't identify as a male or female? What if there are other genders that they want to identify as? Do you actually believe? Are you so close-minded? Are you so arrogant as to think that God only made two genders, male and female? Do you actually think that, that Jesus will wipe away all of your sins? Do you actually think that Jesus can retrieve your crack addict son? Do you actually think that Jesus can restore your wayward daughter? Do you actually think that Jesus can mend your marriage? Do you actually think that Jesus can put your life together? Do you actually believe that Jesus can open a door of employment for you? Do you actually believe that God knows everything past, present, and future? Do you actually think that God knows your past, he's prepared your present, and he's got a future home in heaven for you? Do you actually believe what this book says about God and about you? That's what your Sam Ballot, that's what your Tobiah, and that's what your Geshem will ask. And you know how we will respond? We will respond, we are God's servants. And he will give us success. We might not have success in the eyes of Sam Ballot, Tobiah, and Geshem. But we will have success in the eyes of God. God will give his church success because we are God's servants. Say, Pastor, how do you know this? How can you be so confident on that platform? I'm not standing on a platform. I'm standing on the word of God. And I respond in faith. What is faith? Faith is a one-way ticket. With trust in God and obedience to God as its only destination. So have faith in God. He's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches over his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. It's in the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. We are a people of faith. We're a people who trust God. We're a people who obey God because we know that faith is a one-way ticket with trust in God and obedience to God as its only destination. So we will say with Nehemiah, God will give us success. That's not arrogance. It's not cockiness. It's faith. God will give us success because we are his servants. 
We're not here to build fame, not here to build a fortune, not here to build a kingdom. We're here to do God's work in God's way. And we do it by faith. It's a one-way ticket. With trust in God and obedience to God as its only destination. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we give you this invitation. Lord, if there's someone here listening to my voice who does not know you as Savior and Lord, Jesus, you're the only one who can mend brokenness. You're the only one who can fix what's messed us up inside. So Jesus, we pray that for someone listening to my voice who does not know you as Savior and Lord, that they will respond in this very moment of invitation, that they will come down the aisle, take one of the ministers by the hand and say, I need, I need to be made whole. I need to be forgiven. I need to take God at his word. Let that happen today, Lord. Please let that happen today. And then also we pray that for those of us who know you as Savior and Lord, that today that we will rid ourselves of all apathy and complacency, that we will earnestly seek after you. What is it that you've placed on our heart to do? So Lord, have this invitation. The altar's open. You move, we will respond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.